Hi everyone, David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we begin, if you and maybe some of your colleagues would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and want to read or listen to the essential in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight, Climate and Energy. My name is David Weston and joining me once again is Jan Rosenau of the Regulatory Assistance Project. Hi Jan, are you well? Um, Hello David. Yes, I'm very well. I'm still recovering um, from all the turmoil around Twitter. I'm, As you know, I'm a very avid Twitter user and um, uh, my feed is now full of people talking about Mastodon and LinkedIn and, and other platforms. So um, I just set up a profile on Mastodon, which um, is, is an interesting experience. Maybe we could talk about it later, but it's it certainly is um, uh, an alternative as far as I can tell. Interesting. Are you considering leaving Twitter? Oh, oh no, not not for now. But I'm I'm considering setting up a second platform just in case. Sounds, sounds good. Um, uh, yeah, I know you recently had rooftop installers installed at your home. Is that correct? Yes, we had solar installed in July after a couple of months of waiting, which was um, I think fairly short as far as I can tell. The lead times are now a lot longer wow. uh, than, than a couple of months for residential solar in the UK. But yes, that that's right. Um. I, I don't have solar on my house, but I, I am kind of unthinking about it. Would you recommend it? How should I go about it? It's, I mean, it's dead easy to install. It took um, a day and a half. Uh, the second day, it was only half a day for the electrician to connect the inverter properly and things like that, set up the app. But um, the actual disruption is absolutely minimal. At least it was for us. Um, it, it really was very, very quick. And if you have finance that you can use, actually the solar usually pays back over a few years now, um, given the, the prices that we have, uh, and even before the, the, the price crisis. So yes, I, w- I would certainly recommend it, even in, in a cloudy place like the UK, solar now makes um, business sense. Absolutely. Yeah, solar is becoming an ever more popular choice for homeowners as costs continue to fall. And our guest this week is Alexandra Somste, uh, the Vice President of External Relations at Renewable Energy Developer Accuo Energy. Uh, to discuss the role of solar and what role it can play in the energy transition. And now that it's become an established technology, there are a whole host of innovative new technologies that are being developed and new business models being trialled. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, guys. Thanks a lot. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Um, Firstly, Alexandra, before we kind of dive into um, solar and the different uh, options uh, available to the sector, we're recording this episode at the start of COP27 uh, taking place in Egypt. What are your hopes for solar uh, from COP? And are you intending to attend COP yourself? Okay. So, yeah, I'll be attending COP as of uh, next week. Uh, We'll have uh, several meetings over there because at the COP, what is interesting is that you have the negotiation part, which is uh, key for for the climate change uh, UNFCCC. But then on the other side, it's a place where you actually meet in one go all the stakeholders uh, of the energy transition. So basically, you save time and you save travel, uh, you save energy uh, emissions, uh, and then you can actually meet with all the stakeholders for an IPP like us. I meet in two days the ministers from Portugal, from Colombia, from Brazil. I mean, all the people we actually work for and where we actually building projects. So for us, it's it's kind of a of a key of a key moment, and then. Coming back to your question, what is the prospect for solar at COP? Um, what is kind of obvious um, since the uh, uh, Ukraine war started on this 22nd of February, um, the world has changed and now there is no other option but going for renewable energy. And people uh, eventually realize that they have to go for it, that it's mainstream, it's cheap, and it's actually extremely reliable. And it's local, meaning that you don't rely on external source of energy coming from another uh, country or another continent. So um, the solar, um, the future of the solar sector is pretty bright, actually. 
I will also be at COP, Alexander. Maybe we can meet uh, in, in the Blue Zone. I would um, love so. Uh, I will arrive on Saturday um, and stay until Wednesday. Um, I don't meet any ministers so far, um, but I have um, three speaking opportunities that look all very interesting and there will be many side meetings, I hope. So perhaps we can have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee um, in Charm. I would very much like so. Yeah, what are your hopes for COP? Well, I've seen a fair amount of pessimism, um, I think, in some of the media coverage around this COP. Um, uh, yeah, like last time in Glasgow a year ago, I think it was kind of the opposite. There was a lot of optimism in the room. Yeah, I, I haven't followed the, the details of what the negotiation positions are, but I think we are really at a very different uh, point in time now, aren't we? We're, you know, like last year... Um, energy prices, yes, they were high, but they, you know, we didn't have uh, the invasion of Ukraine. We didn't have the energy crisis that we now face. Um, and I would hope that, um, just the point that Alexandra made, that there's increasing recognition that the transition to clean energy actually is not just about reducing carbon emissions. You know, this is about rebuilding the energy system. Uh, you know, making sure we're not dependent on expensive fossil fuel imports. Building resilience, you know, homegrown energy rather than importing it from elsewhere. So I hope that message will also help um, to build confidence in in the leaders that are meeting at COP uh, to do more and to accelerate the transition. Absolutely, um, yeah, it'd be great to see some actual um, firm actions come out of the uh, of the meeting. Alexandra, you, you mentioned a couple of uh, ministers that you're going to be meeting there, there Portugal. I think you mentioned. Uh, what what countries around the world are, are the world leaders in solar power and what are they doing to drive the transition to solar and how are they supporting solar? Well, so interestingly, they, um, they are countries where solar is just obvious for years, um, let alone Germany. Uh, it's not so obvious because you don't think about Germany as a very solar country. But when you travel around Germany, every single roof is equipped with uh, solar panels since years. So this is for a fact already. Then you have other countries who realize that it was an enormous opportunity to actually deliver on cheap electricity. And, and, and I mentioned Portugal and Portugal uh, five years ago uh, launched a call for tenders for huge uh, solar plants. And then there was an, an incredible competition for uh, all around Europe to, to actually win those standards, and the price went down to 17 cents per kilowatt. So at that time, it was a world record, and Aku actually uh, won the tender. Um, such a price now couldn't be actually uh, <laughs> delivered as of today because the world has changed uh, in the meantime, but it gives you the, uh, the magnitude of what is feasible in country when sun is super abundant and when the state is dedicated to make things happen and have the right enabling framework so that developers can actually go quick and fast to go for the permitting for um, the um, uh, the connection point and all the uh, administrative procedures that need to be uh, uh, achieved in order to actually produce and deliver electricity to the citizen. And then you have a third group of countries that realize that, well, solar energy is a way to their uh, um, independence. And not only energy independence, but independence as such. And this is true for North Macedonia. This is true for Kosovo. This is true for Bulgaria. All those countries that are neighboring the uh, Ukrainian war that realize that there is a risk of not getting the gas that they've been relying on for years. Now, they, these countries are sunny countries. It's easy, it's fast, and it's pretty cheap to install uh, solar energy over there. And massively, they start deploying uh, solar energy. And this is actually extremely new because there was not such an impulsion in, in those countries just eight months ago. They've been thinking about it, but the process has never been as fast as it goes now. Alexandra, um, you know, you, you're doing a lot of work in this area, but I don't think all of our listeners will have heard the name um, Akuo Energy before. Uh, it might be useful to explain what role you're actually playing, because there's so many different 
players in this, right? You, you, you have the manufacturers, then you have installers, you have middle agents, um, you have uh, people who are working finance around solar. Kind of what's what's your niche in in this pretty large supply chain that we now have in the solar industry? Thanks, Jan. Maybe I should have started with uh, with this explanation. So Aku um, was created 15 years ago, and we are what we call an IPP, so independent power producer. That is, we don't belong to any big utility, neither to any state. We're French because we're based in France, but we operate in 30 countries around the world. And what we do is that we develop, we finance, we build and we operate our plants, be they solar plant, wind plant or storage plant. So we are on these three technologies. And what is important is that we are all along the value chain. So we don't produce, for instance, the blade of, of, of a windmill, neither do we produce solar panels. We buy them from suppliers, but for the rest, we do it all meaning that we stay. And this is a key differentiating factor because we have a lot of competitors and this is fine. I mean, this is not criticism. It's just a different business model. We have a lot of, of competitors that actually develop and build, let's say, solar farms, and then they sell it. And, and they get out of the business because their business is not actually to maintain and operate. We do the maintenance and we do the operation. And this is actually changing the entire way you create, design, and think about a project. Because if you stay for 25 years, believe me, you have to be in a good relationship with the neighbors, meaning the farmers, meaning the municipality, meaning all the local um, communities that are surrounding or that possibly co-created the project with us. Because if you build and then you sell, it's a five-year issue, and that's it. But if you stay for 25 years, you're better off being in good relationship with those people. And this is actually a key component of our project that is a local increase. And we are, I think, strongly uh, recognized for being uh, a player that has strong anchorage in the local territories. And we very much like it because renewable energy is the energy of the territories. It's a local energy, nothing else than the local energy. And this is the model we're fighting for. So it's strongly encore within our DNA. I'd like to ask a follow-up question on, on that because you reminded me of the policy of our former prime minister in the UK, Liz Truss, not to build any solar on farmland. Uh, that was that was her policy. And I think that's 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 now up for grabs because we have a new prime minister, and hopefully that's no longer uh, you know, going to be the policy of the UK. But I I just sort of um, wanted to ask you about what are the benefits for the local communities that might be happy to have a large solar utility scale solar installation. It, you know, what, what do they get? Um, I, I can I can see the value proposition from from your perspective because you, you're selling electricity and making money. But what's the benefit for the local community? I'll answer the question very straightforward. For the local community, first, if they uh, negotiate properly with the IPP, like our cool, uh, competitor, um, they can um, get uh, a, a local energy at a good price stable price for years, which is, in this period of time, quite a luxury, right? I don't know how it goes in the UK, but in France, my electricity bill has gone up five times. So I wish I could have a local electricity with a flat price over 20 years. That's one. Second, for the farmers, the ones that are renting their land, of course, they receive income, right? And then, depending on the uh, power producer you're working with, you have measures, accompanying measures, that can bring either farming, either schooling, either whatever. But this is normal process, right? So this is like any IPP. Now I'll tell you about our story. When Aqua started, so as I said, we're French. But 15 years ago, when you started growing as a, as a new company in France, you were surrounded by EDF all over because this is a very French territory, and there was no space left for us. 
So we were forced to go in the French island, like Martinique, Guadeloupe, La Réunion, where, guess what? Land is scarce. And you don't want to steal the land from the farmer. That's not an option. You don't want to produce renewable energy to, on the contrary, deprive people from the means to actually produce food for their own necessity, right? So we had to come up with a creative way of producing energy. And then we invented at the time what we called agri-energy, and now it's recognized as agrivoltaism. And this is now a well-known concept, and this is perfect. And we're very happy that many people actually are doing agrivoltaism. So the principle of agrivoltaism is to say, look, guys, we're going to share the land. So on the soil, you're going to either raise uh, um, porks or whatever, uh, and or you can grow vegetables, or you can grow flowers, or you can grow paper if you if you're in La Réunion, depending where you live, what is the best available seed, and what is the most valuable for the land. And then on top of it, either at 50 centimeter or one meter or even two meter high, we install panels, and then the land is subrented. The way we do it, we subrent the land to a farmer that commits to turn organic. We don't impose any time limit, but we encourage through our own engineers that are agri-engineers to support the farmer so that it turns its land into organic food or organic flour or whatever. And then we get remuneration and we earn our money through the electricity we produce on the top. So basically, there is a double usage of the land, which means that one plus one equals three, which is perfect. And in this sense, and please don't accept this quote, in this sense only, I agree with your former prime minister, you should not actually capture the land from the farmer, but you should work with the farmer so that there is a nice equilibrium. Now, if we go to Texas, where land is all over the place and you can you can lose you can use whatever square kilometers you need that's not a question but when there is a competition for land and where arable land is scarce of course you should come up with such solutions yeah i'm afraid that uh, nuance got lost in the uk <laughs> debate um uh, but maybe we leave it there <laughs> um alexandra that sort of um, model and that sort of business partnership that you develop with the farmers that must also be very beneficial for these communities where um, money isn't quite as affluent as well. There's maybe slightly poorer communities um, that can then benefit from renewables. Yeah, certainly. I'll give you two two examples. Uh, in La Réunion, we created uh, different kinds of uh, agrivoltaism. On one of them, uh, the farmer decided to grow uh, a specific kind of flowers. The name in French is lys. Um, and before that, people from La Réunion were importing this kind of flowers, meaning boats coming from far away, etc. Now they have a local production. So the farmer is making quite good money. And then people are getting cheaper flowers for their home, which is nice. Another example, we uh, install solar panel on the top of fish farms. And thanks to these solar panels, first, you have a decrease in uh, capture by the birds of the fish by 40%, which is not nothing. So it means 40% increase in the fish production. And then not only uh, the farmer has got more fish to sell, but then he was able, because these fish are, are actually the one making caviar. So now they have local caviar, which was also quite a, quite a benefit uh, because before they were obliged to import it and, and to, to, to sell something coming from uh, Central Europe, for instance. So this is very beneficial. And then if you push the model slightly forward, which we've done again in La Réunion, La Réunion is a, is a kind of a, a laboratory. We um, decided to uh, cooperate uh, with the jail. So uh, in the jail uh, component, compound, you had um, one size of the lens that was dedicated to the building for inmates. And then you had another parcel that was left and not really used. So we decided to transform this part of the land into an agrivoltaic uh, farm. And we are training 
the inmates to uh, organic agriculture. And those inmates, once they get out of the jail, are actually becoming the trainer of the next inmates because unfortunately there are always inmates coming in. And, um, and, and then uh, it ends up with a virtual circle whereby uh, these inmates become farmers and not only farmers, but organic farmers also able to actually handle uh, electricity production on the top of their production. So this is really the ultimate um, positive uh, social and environmental impact. And we're very proud of now uh, doing this not only in La Réunion, but elsewhere. Absolutely fascinating um, uh, how you combine all these different pieces in quite creative ways because, yeah, that that is not widely known, I think. And uh, also that combination of allowing farming to happen whilst harvesting the solar energy. Um, yeah, I don't think many people have heard about that, even though it's been around for a while now. Um, I mean, I, did, I didn't know that it was as your company actually developing it and pushing it. Um, uh, but I'm I'm a fan, and I think uh, this is this is clearly something that um, yeah we we should be doing more of. Yeah, but it, it, it requires. I mean, and and we need to be transparent on this. It, it requires a certain amount of criteria. First, it requires the backup of the local municipality. They have to be convinced by the fact that it will bring not only one, not only two, but three uh, benefits benefits uh, to, to, to the local communities. And then it requires more time to get the right funding. Because of course, I mean, when we started it, it was more expensive because it requires more time. You need, uh, you need agronomists to accompany you. So you need to pay different people. It's not only installers. And therefore you need different support scheme. And this is why uh, I, I know you're based in the UK, but uh, I need to inform you a little about what the EU is doing, right? At least if inform the people listening to us. Uh, we were extremely pleased by the fact that the European Commission last December uh, published a new stated guidelines. So uh, the stated guidelines, it's a rule book that allows the 27 member states to provide support uh, in the form of a grant or tariff to specific uh, renewable energy technologies. And in this guideline, they allow for innovative technologies such as agrivoltaism, the member state to support through uh, a certain amount of uh, tariff, uh, so to say, to support uh, this technology, which means that they acknowledge it's more expensive, but they allow uh, the 27 member state to support it so that it can be further rollout. And this is an excellent news because indeed you could not compete agrivoltaise versus ground-mounted solar. Of course, the cheapest would be ground-mounted solar. Fair enough. Just to understand, Alexandra, so you're saying the commission is encouraging a differentiation of the uh, is it subsidies um, that are being, being offered for solar um, along the lines of offering a higher, a premium, if you will, for... Exactly for systems that are not just ground-mounted solar, but um, yeah, have all these innovative features that you described before. Is, is, that, is that what the commission is, is doing? The commission actually allows it. And it's important to be precise because uh, competition law within the European Union forbids uh, subsidies, right, to any sectors. But for some sector, like the car industry in the 90s, so you've been commissioned, allowed some support. And here, through the stated guidelines for the renewable energy sector, they allow some specific support in specific case. Of course, I mean, this is all well uh, established and it's very well written, uh, but some support to uh, specific uh, solar innovation, such as agrivoltaism. And this is key because right now in France, uh, the uh, Assemblée Nationale and the Senate are currently debating about a new legislation that will actually enable this support to agrivoltaise. So it was key that the European Commission actually allowed member states to do it. 
Hi everyone, David here again. Just a reminder that you and your colleagues can get premium access to the What Matters podcast and all of the in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy by subscribing. You can give us a try for 30 days for just €29, Euros, where you can access our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now, back to our conversation. Alexandra, as solar power technology developed to such an extent now where we can basically put solar panels anywhere and they'd be kind of cost effective? The answer is yes. So at the beginning of this uh, of this recording session, uh, Jan and, and yourself, you were speaking about uh, Jan's roof. Um, Jan decided to put a solar uh, solar roof, but he could also have decided to put solar tiles. So basically, if you have to change your roof because your tiles are not good enough anymore. Instead of changing and having new tiles, you could have tiles that in the same product not only protect you from the rain and the eel or whatever, but also produce electricity because they are solid tiles and they are electrified. And um, this has become uh, affordable and uh, it's actually quite an income for, for, for individuals. And of course, there's uh, other things like uh, you mentioned that floating solar is having quite an impact as well uh, with help of farming and, and um, helping to um, preserve water uh, reservoirs and water levels as well. So floating solar is, a, is another extremely interesting technology. So um, in Europe, you have uh, an amount of reservoir uh, whereby there, there is no uh, use either recreational use or uh, uh, use for biodiversity. Uh, these reservoirs are basically um, kind of uh, dead in terms of biodiversity. And then on top of it, you can add, you can add on uh, floating solar panels, which allows not only to produce electricity, but also to protect from water evaporation. So basically, it keeps the level of water which is extremely useful for the um, use of water through the land that are surrounding this reservoir and actually are getting what they need, the nutrition from this reservoir. And uh, and, and then it keeps uh, reserves for uh, water needs uh, in case. And then what we experienced, because we built uh, the first and the, the largest uh, floating solar farm in, in the south of France, at the time, it was 17 uh, megawatts. And uh, we observed that thanks to these uh, solar floating panels, uh, it was protecting um, the water and therefore the biodiversity was coming back. And this is extremely interesting because we've been accused of uh, putting uh, adding plastic on water and this was completely negligent, etc. And on the contrary, uh, such technology allowed a revival of the biodiversity within this reservoir. And of course, it's not us uh, trying to demonstrate this or marketing. We have had studies of biologists looking at it because it was the first of a kind. So people were extremely interesting and uh, we can only be, uh, be proud of that. Absolutely. And do you see um, more hybrid projects coming along? So solar with wind and solar with hydro. Uh, do you see more kind of... Um, yeah, joint projects with these technologies. Yeah, more and more. For, so, for instance, we at Aqua, we have a lot of wind projects and more and more we're looking into hybridization of our project because it makes sense from an ecological perspective. You have the land, you have the connection already. So, basically, you're in looking for the injection of more kilowatt or megawatts. And, and, and it is more responsible to, to have um, several kinds of sources on the same land because it's perfectly feasible. And now we have the storage technology and the balancing technology that allows us to actually make sure that this hybridization process can actually uh, deliver. Alexander, I mean, solar clearly has a huge potential. And uh, I think there's no doubt that you know, the energy coming from the sun uh, is multiple times more than what we need on Earth. In fact, actually last week, I tweeted that solar radiation reaching the Earth's surface in just 
sort of one year is um, uh, about 5,500 times more than what we need for energy consumption on the earth. Um, but you know, I always get the kind of usual reminders from people that the sun sets every evening and therefore solar is useless because it, you know, we don't have it in overnight. How do you respond to people making such statements, you know, sort of saying solar isn't particularly useful because it's um, variable and doesn't always deliver? Uh, one word, storage. Storage is, is, is making our life so different. And what you just mentioned is an argument of the 70s, you know, uh, when Kennedy was installing solar panels on, on the roof of the White House. I mean, this is past. But now, thanks to storage, you can actually have the energy you need when the sun is not shining anymore. And people who are telling this are just, you know, living in the past because they don't, they don't acknowledge the existing technologies. And for us, uh, storage is, is not a, an add-on. It's, it's, it has just become main, mainstream to, to actually deliver solar plus storage because it makes sense. When you say storage, um, do you mean a battery storage or are you also talking about sort of seasonal storage over much longer periods of time? So at Aqua, we, we, we mainly use uh, battery storage, uh, but you could do all kinds of storage. But, but the one we use for our solar plant is battery storage. Absolutely. I mean, green hydrogen, of course, is another way of storing um, uh, electricity. And we had uh, several episodes where we have discussed um, the merits and potential risks um, of, of, of hydrogen production. Um, and, and, you know, we had a district heating episode, um, I think, last time where we talked about thermal storage, which is also really interesting, where you could use, uh, it doesn't have to be electricity, it could also be thermal Uh, energy that you store uh, and then use it um, in the winter. Um, so there's there, there's lots of different storage technologies yeah. out there um, beyond beyond batteries, um, and and I guess we need all of them in some way. Yeah, precisely. And and thermal storage is is something that has become mainstream as well. When it comes to to green hydrogen, uh, there is still a long way to go. Uh, we're not that there yet. Uh, we at Aqua we've been trying. Um, The needed equipments are not produced uh, in such a quantity that uh, it, it is affordable. Uh, so it, it remains very much a niche. But I assume uh, and, and we guess that uh, once it will be rolled out, uh, this is certainly a solution we have to count on. Alexandra, what are your sort of visions or what does Accuo's visions for battery storage? How big can they get? How Uh, how much duration storage can they can they um, uh, store? Uh, where does the battery storage? What is your your views of the battery storage industry um, and its impact? There are lots of criticisms. They're really only good for kind of short spurts, four hours, maybe five hours. Obviously, the bigger you go, the more expensive it gets. Um, are you looking at other alternative storage solutions? I'm, I'm, I'm not an engineer specialist in, uh, in, in battery, so I'm afraid I will disappoint you. What I can tell, it, it's more on a, on, on, on a political uh, trend. Uh, you can see that what comes from states, what the tenders that are being issued, are never without storage. So this is pushing the market, this is pushing innovation, And um, we, as a market player, we don't play anymore without storage, which means that there is a strong incentive to develop uh, uh, batteries that are even more efficient and uh, with, with a longer duration. I would like to ask you another question about costs of solar. Um, yeah, we've, we've all seen the graphs by the likes of the IPCC and others showing the huge decline of uh, costs of solar. I think the IPCC is quoting a figure of 85% cost reduction um, you know, per, per capacity of solar during the last decade alone, which is absolutely uh, remarkable uh, and a huge achievement. But more recently, we've seen reports that the cost of solar and, and actually other clean energy technologies too have increased because of a number of factors. Um, 
You could could you sort of comment on that? To what extent are prices increasing? Sort of why that does that happen? What are the key drivers? And and what do you think is the trajectory for costs falling again? And and what will be needed to to make that happen? Okay, so uh, that's that's a very interesting question because this will lead to to the industrial policy. Um, so um, the cost reduction, indeed, in in solar panel has been kind of crazy, and and which was perfect to actually roll out uh, solar farms all over the world. Now we see uh, over the past 10, 11 months, a sharp increase compared to what it was because of transportation costs. And this is basically the consequence of the COVID crisis uh, because uh, there was a lack in transportation uh, facilities and, and there was a um, congestion. congestion. Uh, and we suffered from it. Um, there is a sharp increase also in uh, all the component prices, including aluminium and uh, all the all the metals that you need to assemble uh, uh, solar panels. Um, and then um, there is a social price about solar panels, and this is the elephant in the room, right? Ninety percent of the solar panels are actually produced in China. And thanks to um, politicians that were uh, aggressive enough uh, and determined enough, we now have uh, the European Commission coming up with a proposal for a ban on products, not only solar panels, coming from uh, possible uh, forced labor. And this is the direct uh, consequence of the accusation of forced labor in Xinjiang, uh, against the Uyghur community by uh, by China, and it was time that uh, uh, the industry uh, get together and started uh, to actually act accordingly to what we think attack war should be in our DNA. So you cannot go for renewable energy if this renewable energy is made with uh, forced labor. This is just not an option. So it's a good thing that at the end of the day, the European Commission came up, and also the US on, on its side, uh, came up with this proposal because it introduced a level playing field. So you, because what would have been difficult is having, let's say, Aquo competing against uh, Total or uh, RWE uh, for solar panels, uh, depending where they were produced, they would have a different price. But since... This will be ruled at the EU level and within the US. This will be excluded. And this is excellent because this will actually force an industrial policy, and this is forcing an industrial policy within the US, and this is now forcing an industrial policy in the EU, to get our act together and actually produce our solar panels within the EU. This will bring actually CO2 emissions reductions because you will not have to transport these panels from China to Portugal, for instance. This will create jobs, and this will reinforce our sovereignty, because actually we have strong uh, targets for the EU Green Deal in the EU, but so far I'm afraid it will be difficult to achieve without the Chinese solar panels. And this is a real issue. How can we choose between those two issues, human rights, versus environmental concerns. This shouldn't be an issue. So as of today, um, the European Commission was brave enough to put forward this legislation, but then it has to come up with an additional push for the industrial policy to support producers of wafers, etc., etc., all the components, uh, so that uh, solar panels can be produced in the EU or in the US, like the US government is uh, is highly supporting for solar, for instance, and this is key. On a on a similar note, Alexandra, I mean, you mentioned the the labor conditions, and and yeah. um, it's great to see that progress is being made um, to in, to ensure that the conditions are improving. Uh, the the other criticism that is sometimes um, uh, discussed, it, it, you know, not just for solar, but for other clean energy technologies too, is around the um, minerals, the metals being used in manufacturing, the mining process, and everything that's 
that's around that. You know, the environmental impacts of mining are pretty significant, and there are also so, sort of significant social uh, impacts of of, of mining. Um, what is the industry doing to 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 address that? Um, and do you see a similar discussion happening happening there as well? Um, the industry is doing two things. First, <laughs> correcting the facts. I explain myself. Um, well, you mentioned the metals that are used in uh, the renewable technology, for instance. But you should also say that the metals that are used, uh, the minerals that are used in the renewable technology are only but a fraction of those minerals used in nuclear energy or in fossil fuel technologies. So, I mean, let's be honest, right? I'm not disclaiming that there is known, but I'm saying let's put the church right at the center of the village, as I would say in French. I mean, you have to understand that it's only minor compared to other sources of energy production. Then what we are doing is that we are working with the suppliers so that they can actually improve uh, their manufacturing process And then also we are going for more uh, recycling and this is key. And, and the uh, renewable energy technology didn't wait for this debate to actually work on its own recycling process. The solar technology is already recycled at 97% and almost the same for the wind uh, technology. I don't think other energy technology could pretend to reach the same score of uh, recyclability. Yeah, that brings me to my maybe last sort of challenge that I come across uh, all of the times that people say, yeah, we're building all these solar panels, uh, but they will just all end up in landfill. And you know, in in um, uh, 20 years time, when all these new panels will be decommissioned, they just end up in landfill. I mean, I found quite a few companies that already uh, recycle solar panels and extract the quite valuable materials in them and then reuse them. Um, but but could you just say a few words like how widespread is that? Is that is that something you think that will become the norm? Um, maybe it is already um, you know, covering most of the solar panels, but just for our listeners, I think to hear about this would be very interesting. It is already very much widespread for one simple reason, for the economical value of the components. You don't leave golden bars outside in the fields. You actually get it back and you use them and you recycle. But surely the um, the level of material that you can recycle is not going to be enough for the level of demand that the solar industry needs to meet. You know, we're talking about you know more and more people putting solar panels on their rooftops. We're able to put solar panels on reservoirs and basically anywhere now. It seems the technology's developed so far. Um, I sell somewhere it needs to be you know, almost a. I think it's a terawatt of renewables, so between wind and solar and hydro, a year uh, to 2050. So the demand for solar is going to outstrip the supply from recycled materials. So what can the European sector do? What can the US sector do to help secure that supply of materials in a way that is fair to both the supplier, but also doesn't make solar and wind, particularly but particularly solar, uh, extortionately uh, expensive? Well, I guess two things. I mean, not I guess. I mean, I'm sure two things. Uh, first, uh, run uh, and implement a strong industrial policy on each territory, the US and the EU, so that the manufacturing process can actually be implemented and delivered within their own territory. And second, continue pushing for innovation. And, well, the EU is, is quite uh, well on track for this and, and a lot of money, uh, public money, is going to uh, innovation for uh, renewable technology and, and new, new sorts of renewable technologies. And uh, all of this money uh, is actually um, directed towards uh, technologies that are less demanding on metals, that are more using recycled components, etc., etc. So, Honestly, at least from my knowledge of the EU legislator, I think the way the legislation and the fund are attributed is pretty well done. Uh, I'm afraid I'm not a specialist in US public funding, uh, but at least for the EU side, um, one can acknowledge that uh, the EU is doing its job and putting its act together. So you think there's still a lot more innovation to come? We've spoken about lots of solar innovation already today. You think there's still more to come from the sector? 
Yeah, exactly. On 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 what you mentioned on how to use to use less uh, um, metals, uh, um, supply of uh, how you can increase the, the the recycled component and so forth and so forth. And just finally, from me, then uh, you see we were talking about how prices had slightly increased a bit. Do you envision them to go back down, and how low can they go? I you know I was speaking to lots of uh, I'm. Ostensibly, I'm a wind guy. I started out in the wind industry and I'm speaking to lots of wind people and they say, you can, costs can go, but you can't produce energy for free. They need, there comes a cost. So how low can sort of solar power uh, go? Do you think that's fair, uh, both to, again, to the suppliers, but also the customers? I wouldn't be able to, to provide you with a figure, but we have reached extremes. Uh, four years ago, we reached uh, 17 cents uh, per kilowatt and this was way too low and completely unsustainable. And now we reach uh, 108, uh, sometimes 600 uh, euros uh, per megawatt, which is way too high. So I don't believe we will stay at this level. I think things will come back to normal. But one thing for sure is that neither the sun nor the wind will ever send their bill at the end of the month. And this is so different from nuclear or fossil fuel energy because you don't need to pay for those resources. So you actually pay for the technology, you pay for the installation as of for any other source of energy, but you don't pay for the source of energy. And this will never change, as far as I know. Uh, that, that's a great note um, to finish on, but perhaps I can... I can ask you, uh, if you had one wish, um, you know, how to change energy policy to drive solar um, uptake, uh, what would it be? Well, I think it would be extremely fair and extremely interesting to have uh, the same level playing field for all sorts of energy. Because currently we compare, we compare pears and apples. And it's difficult especially in France, when you speak about nuclear energy to compare with the, with the price of renewable energy because there is a lot of hidden subsidies. And the same for fossil fuels. I mean, I'm 45. It's like 30 years I hear about cuts the fossil fuel subsidies, you know, this motto. Fine, but do it. And then we'll be able to compare. So this is my hope, getting the same level playing field. Absolutely. That's also, maybe that's something we could... Uh... Hope for coming out of the COP discussions this week. Um, Alexandra, thank you so much for your time today. One thing we ask all of our guests um, is if they could look into their crystal ball, what does the energies landscape look like in 10 to 20 years' time? What do you, would you like to see happen uh, in the energy transition? Well, no surprise for you guys after speaking with me for 40 minutes. I wish we could have uh, 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 even larger rollouts of solar and, and wind energy all over the country and also um, make sure that people understand that it's their sovereignty that is at stake, their independence, that thanks to renewable energy, they will not depend on Russia, they will not depend on Qatar and so forth and so forth. They will just depend on themselves and the sun and the wind. Absolutely. Uh, completely agree there. Uh, thanks, Alexandra. That was really interesting. Before we go, just would like to go around the table quickly and ask what caught my eye uh, this week, uh, something that really made you uh, sit up and pay attention, uh, a post or anything that you saw about the energy transition. Jan, uh, let's start with you. What caught your eye? Well, it's got to be the IEA's World Energy Outlook. Um, I'm sure you, you have the same report um, in mind, um, uh, David and Alexandra, perhaps too. Um, I mean, for the simple reason that I think it's the first time that the IEA is predicting a decline now in fossil fuel demand um, based on stated policies that's that's uh, historically um, unheard of and and is yeah usually the IA predicts an increase in demand so I think it's a it's a pretty important report coming out just at the right time before COP. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, I have not read the full report yet. It's obviously quite long, but uh, yeah, some really interesting stuff coming out of that report um, that um, definitely giving us food for thought. Alexandra, what caught your eye this week? Well, I've been speaking a, a lot in positive, positive terms about EU legislation, but here I came across something that was not so positive. 
So in response to the current energy crisis, the European Commission published what is called a non, um, non-binding position paper. And there in this paper, basically, uh, instead of acknowledging that the energy crisis is a fossil fuel crisis, they uh, kind of merge everything together and they targeted uh, renewable energy in a very detrimental manner. Because not only did they impose a cap on electricity price coming from renewable energy sources, but also did they want to move the entire renewable energy sector to contract for difference, which implies that renewable energy would not be able anymore to go on the market, but only uh, in the uh, kind of uh, stated premium. Um, which is very detrimental to the sector. And I don't understand, and really I don't understand that tackling a fossil fuel crisis, the European Commission is now answering with measures that will hamper the development of renewable energy. So I'm very sad on this, and I'm sorry to end on, on a negative note. No, not at all. There's a lot of reports that make for um, worrying reading. Um, for me, what caught my eye was uh, the uh, leader in this week's Economist um, magazine, which um, basically just said, "We're not going to hit one point. We're not going to stay within the one point five um, degree of global warming. Um, we should almost wave goodbye to that." Um, obviously, the week of COP uh, and the, the, hopefully, uh, the negotiations, negotiations there, hopefully that's giving a bit of um, impetus for the policymakers. Uh, one thing on top of that, just kind of linked, is the um, I saw also a blog post from the Clean Energy Council, which is the renewables trade body in Australia. Um, and they um, put a little blog out on the sort of the first day of COP saying, um, what a difference a year makes. Um, last year at Glasgow, Australia was sort of being uh, really pressured to in, in improve their uh, renew, uh, improve their decarbonisation efforts. Um, and now a year later, they're being welcomed warm armed uh, as obviously being a lot more open to decarbonisation and helping uh, renewables growth and energy efficiency and things like that. So um, it goes to show that there is still changes can still be made that will help the energy transition. Um, and obviously, if we vote for it, of course, um, but also there is still time to make a difference. So yeah, really interesting things going on. But uh, yeah, also some negative and some uh, hard reading. My thanks to Alexandra, Jan, and our producer, Anna. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we have said on today's podcast, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at DaveW underscore Foresight. Alexandra? Yes, you can also join me on my uh, Twitter account, uh, Alex Samstay, and also on LinkedIn. And it was a pleasure to be with you today, Dave and Jan. And you. Thank you so much, Alexandra and Jan. I'm on Jan Rosenau. Perfect. If you have any questions for the team, you can also tweet the show at WhatMattersPod or email us at show at WhatMattersPodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. 